Well, this is the second week of Advent today. And by the way, this is a beautiful Advent wreath that we have here. It looks great. And man, the church is decorated. It looks so nice. Got the uh, nativity over here and the Christmas trees and looks great. Thanks for all of you that came out. I think it was on Thursday night and finished decorating the church. You did a great job and it sets the tone for the, for the season. Um, before we get into Advent, which won't take long, but um, let me flash, uh, mention something that flashed to my mind just now. This early Sunday mornings, my wife and I, we get up pretty early, usually five or six, and we have our coffee and, and all. And there's a couple favorite programs um, that we watch on TBN or Daystar and and one of my favorites is David Jeremiah. I've mentioned his name before. How many of you know who David Jeremiah is? Um, he started something this morning, and, and they play throughout the day. It's just a half-hour program, but it's called, I think the title of it is Why the Nativity? And it is, um, uh, it's dramatically done. It's not like him usually standing at the podium speaking. And it's, the first part of it was today. And part two is going to be next week. And if you think of it, and today or during the week, because his programs kind of play throughout the week, take a look at that. It is just one of the most compelling presentations and explanations of the meaning of the nativity. And I just wanted you to be aware of that. Well, um, the four weeks of Advent have been celebrated by different Christians in different parts of the world for centuries and centuries now. And so we're going to light these candles, and we do have two or three kids. If, if, any, if any of you kids would like to come up to the front right now, you can. I'd love to have you do it. One of you can light a couple of candles. If not, you can stay right where you are. Um, I do have candy canes. Uh, that always work for bribery for those of you that come to the front. Um, but she's this little girl here shaking her head no. So anyway, well, I will go ahead and light the candles, and then. But this is going to be geared for the uh, kids that are here today. Uh, the first candle that we lit last week was the candle of hope, and this is also called the prophet's candle. There are over 300 Old Testament prophecies predicting the coming of the Messiah. Today's candle is called the peace candle. And this is also called the angel's candle. The reason why um, I asked uh, AJ to put up Hark the Herald Angels Sing is they're the ones that are announcing peace on earth. And peace peace is one of the things that happens in our heart when Jesus comes into our life. And I don't know if there's any of you that have Advent candles at home or maybe during this week. This is the week of peace. And there are different passages of Scripture pertaining to the peace of God that he brings into our life. And in this week ahead, maybe in your devotions, you'd want to focus on the peace. And how many of you would agree that this is a world that needs the peace that Jesus brings right now? And so he's here. 
And he brings peace into our hearts and into our lives. Now there is a, uh, let me set the stage for this. World War I was maybe the most horrible war we've ever experienced as a nation. Trench warfare. And um, this was in, in Western Europe. And the trenches were like um, open air tunnels or uh, channels for hundreds of miles throughout the war front that was there. And on the one side were the German forces and their allies, and on the other side, usually separated by a hundred yards or more a certain distance, were the Western allies, uh, Britain and France were a part of those. And for months and months on end, these soldiers were trapped uh, in these trenches because if you came out, machine guns had just been invented and the carnage was terrible. These, um, uh, trench war, uh, these trenches that were where the armies were uh, staying below ground were infested with rats. Um, people were starving in them. Dead bodies were decaying in them. And the hostilities were horrible. So you can go ahead and put that picture up, uh, AJ, that we have here. Uh, this is a picture of some of the soldiers uh, during in World War I. There was another picture there that had them, the two sides with a little Christmas tree in the middle. I don't know if you can find that one or not. But I'll tell you the story. It was Christmas Eve. And on the German side of the trenches, somebody started singing a Christmas carol. Some say it was Silent Night. It was actually originally a German Christmas carol. Across the way in the other trenches, someone started joining in on the English side in that Christmas carol. And the crescendo began to grow as soldiers on both sides of the battle lines began singing Christmas carols together. On Christmas Eve, the year was 1914. And one brave soul climbed out of the trenches and stood in no man's land. That is where the term no man's land came from, by the way. And started singing Christmas songs. And somebody from the British side got out. And pretty soon soldiers were climbing out of the trenches... And they were singing Christmas carols to each other right in the middle of this brutal war that was taking place. They began exchanging small gifts, pictures of family. This doesn't sound very Pentecostal, but exchanging cigarettes with each other and other things. And this broke out along miles and miles of the trenches, not in every place, because in some places the commanders forbade their soldiers from uh, cavorting with the enemy in this way. But it, it spread throughout that night. In fact, I saw one picture and heard that there was a soccer game they began playing between the Germans and the English, and they were embracing each other. And for a time on that Christmas Eve night, there was peace on earth. 
And that's the peace that God can bring. And even to the most hostile aspects of our life, He can bring inner peace into your life. I have a friend. Uh, He was in prison. He was going to be there maybe for the rest of his life. He's actually a leader in the Assemblies of God denomination now. His name is Sam Huddleston. And he came to the Lord as a prisoner. He was a student of mine at Bethany when I taught there. This would have been in the early 80s. And on one walk with Sam, he said, You know, Stan, there are times when I wish I was back in prison because I never experienced the peace of God in my life like I did as a prisoner. And so in this week of peace, just focus on the peace that God brings and bring that message into the conflict of the moment that is within your life. In relationships, and turmoil that you have in your own life, He is the Prince of Peace. Amen? Okay, the only thing you kids are going to have to come to the front for is to get the candy cane for week two. Now let's see if you remember from last week. This is in the shape of a shepherd's crook. Jesus is the good shepherd. Turn it upside down. And it's the first letter of the name Jesus. The white is because of the sinlessness of Christ. The broad red stripe signifies the blood of Christ that is shed for us. And this is a theologically incorrect candy cane because it has four thin stripes, but a theologically correct one has three. What do the three stripes stand for? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Who wants a candy cane? There you go. I see a teenager back there. Would you like a candy cane? She would? Okay. And and it's something you can suck on during a long, boring message. There you go. All right. Well, you kids can go to uh, Children's Church if you're going to go there today. I don't know what's going on. Pardon me? Oh, okay, 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 okay. We can do this. Are there any that are children at heart that would like a candy cane? There we go. There we go. Last chance. Anybody want a candy cane? You're a child at heart. Oh, yeah, here's another one. There you go. Last chance. Last chance. Oh, here, here they go. There you go. Okay. And you do have permission to suck on those during church. Because that's why they were first invented, if you remember the story from last week. Okay. All right, now for the message today. Um, Oh, by the way, um, this is just, um, on the 23rd of December, we're going to have our Christmas Eve Eve service. 
Um, and so that'll be, I don't know that the time has actually been determined. It'll either be at 6, 6.30 or 7 o'clock. It'll be just a one-hour service. And we would like you to invite friends to come with you and be here. It won't last a long time. Can we do a candlelight service here? Can we do that? We'll make it a candlelight service. Now, something I've always liked to do, and we'll just see if you're up to it or not, or if it would work here. At the close of that service, and it used to be that those were some of the, outside of Easter, sometimes our Christmas Eve service was the biggest service we had all year. But at the end of the, of the service, what we would do is we would pass out candles and we would go outside and as a congregation, just before we headed home, we would light the candles and sing Silent Night together. I don't know if that sounds like something we'd like to do, but we got a little time to work on that. Now, he is a kid at heart because he couldn't even peel the paper off it. He had to have Vanette help him get it peeled down there. So, so, so just keep that in mind. And um, anyway, okay. Um, there we go. So the title of the message this morning, it's kind of a continuation of last week, is Seasons Meanings. Last week we looked at some of the, um, uh, I guess we could call them the condiments of Christmas. Uh, Christmas trees and gift giving and caroling and uh, a lot of these kinds of things. And and I I tried to tell you the story and where they came from and the meaning behind it. But uh, this morning what I'd like for us to do is to interpret the Christmas story. So just keep in mind, that thought as we move through, but I want to set the context of it for just a little bit because the Christmas story does not arise out of a vacuum, but there is a longer story behind it. And I'm going to try to set the stage for it by, um, I'm not sure if you would call this a metaphor or an allegory, but it is the story of a man that I have named Pilgrim. And it's telling the story of why we needed a Savior to come. So Pilgrim is a man who died and he's entering into the afterlife. And he comes to the gates of heaven and he's fairly confident he hasn't done terrible things in his life. He's been a good person. He's fairly confident that he's going to gain entry um, past the entry quarters of heaven into heaven itself. And as he comes through the gate, and I guess we can say it is St. Peter that met him there because uh, it's to Peter that Jesus gave the keys to the kingdom. And so Peter is there to greet Pilgrim. But he can't get right into heaven yet. And as he enters into the entry area, he notices that there are um, large banners, three or four of them, that are there that he must pass through in order to gain entry to heaven. The first banner is the banner of love. Well, for God so loved the world. So Pilgrim's feeling pretty good. So he goes under the banner 
of love, and there is the judge of love that is sitting there. And he takes the record in the book of Pilgrim's life, and he looks at Pilgrim with loving eyes, but he begins to shake his head, no, no, I love you. But God is a perfect God. Now let me segue away from this for just a moment. And we're going to come right back to this. But I want you to picture a flower. The flower is a daisy. A daisy has a center to it. And that center represents God. But in perfect circle around that center, there are the petals of the daisy. And in this perfect daisy, every petal is perfect and complements the other one. There's not one petal that is torn in half or doesn't fit with the others. But what makes that beautiful daisy is the fact that all of those petals of the, des- of the, of the flower are in perfect order around, uh, around the other. Think of that daisy as the character of God. God is perfect. Perfect. God is the fullness of love. He is the perfection of love. God is love, and there is nothing else that can be said about love than what God embodies. You with me? And the next petal represents justice. And God is perfectly justice and true. But his justice cannot compromise or change the nature of love. And so it goes around the perfections of God. He's merciful. He's everlasting. But all of those petals comprise the perfect nature and character of God. And each one of those characteristics... They fill up the category of mercy, say. But that mercy cannot alter the perfection of justice, which is a petal that is nearby. Is this clear what I'm trying to say now? And so when we think of the perfections of God, he fills up all of those qualities. But he cannot be love at the expense of justice or at the expense of one of the other qualities. So as the judge, under the banner of love, shakes his head, he said, I love you. But God is a just God. And there have been things you have done in your life that have compromised your character. And heaven wouldn't be perfect anymore if I let you in. Well, Pilgrim is getting a little concerned. He walks out and he sees the banner of justice. Well, maybe the judge will see. He goes before the judge of justice. He looks at Pilgrim with loving and just and caring eyes. But again, he shakes his head, no, no, because of the sin that has been in your life. Now Pilgrim is getting concerned. But he sees there's one more banner up there. And that's the banner of mercy. God is merciful. God is gracious. And so with 
real expectation and hope. He goes under the banner of mercy and pleads his case before the judge of mercy. And the judge says, I would love to be able to help you. But I can't. Because it compromises the demands of justice. Pilgrim is feeling lost now. And there's just one more banner up there. He goes where he goes to plead his case. And the judge is God that is there. And he pleads his case. And God says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And then he stops and thinks and says, wait, wait. There may be a way, only one way, that you can spend eternity with me. End of allegory. As we look now at the season's meanings, we're going to look at some of the things in the Christmas story that explain the way that we can gain access to eternal life with God in spite of the shortcomings and failures that are in our life. So let's begin by looking at God's family tree. In Matthew chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 3 are two rather lengthy chronologies of Jesus' family tree. Now, I don't know about you. Are there any of you here? I won't ask for a raise of hand because I don't want to put anybody on the spot. But uh, I try to read through the Bible. It usually takes me a little over a year to get through it. And then I repeat it. And I always dread it when I come to Chronicles and the chronologies that are just endless that are there. How many of you know what I'm talking about? And I have to confess, I try to meditate my way through them. But I speed might read my way through those things. And then you come to Matthew and Luke. And I thought I'm finally in the New Testament. And lo and behold in the first chapter of the first gospel. There's another chronology that is there. This is Jesus' family tree. His ancestry. And I believe it starts with Abraham in Um, in Matthew's version, but in Luke, it goes all the way back to Adam. Okay? So why are those chronologies there? I think there's a couple things there that that, that are important. God wants us to understand that the human story isn't just about now. It's not just about me. But it is the story of the human race that traces its way all the way back to the beginning of time. And this plan of salvation has been unfolding since the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And all of those who have died, lived and died before the time of Christ have hope for salvation as they look forward to the pivot of history, which would have been the life and death and resurrection, the cross of Christ. Just as all of us who have lived after 
the life of Christ, are saved as we look back to what God accomplished for us through Christ's death on the cross. Now Matthew's the most Jewish of the gospel writers. But there's something curious in Matthew's genealogy. I'm not going to have I'm not going to read all these verses, but here's some of the characters. There are five women mentioned in Matthew's chronology. And three of them are not very impressive women. There is Tamar, who had an illicit, conniving relationship with her father-in-law, Judah, after the death of her husband, who was son. We'll go into that. Then there's Rahab. She was a harlot. In today's language, she was a prostitute in the city of Jericho. Then there is Ruth. Now, she's the cream of the crop here, except for Mary. She was a Moabitess woman. But she migrated after the death of her husband with her mother-in-law and moved to Israel. But she was an honorable woman, but she was a Gentile. There was Uriah's wife. I put it in quotes because Matthew calls her Uriah's wife. Does anybody know what her name was? Bathsheba. She was an adulteress. And I would say probably a seductress too. You think she didn't know what she was doing when she was taking a shower uh, within the sight of the palace where King David could look down on her? And then there is Mary. And Mary is not a sinner. She is a woman. But she shares in that family tree of some of these impure people but Gentiles and not Jews. Here's the message of that. Jesus didn't come just for the Jewish people or just for the upright people. But he came for the entire human race. So in Jesus' family tree, although he was sinless, he had in his Ancestry.com Some people that were there that were not as glorious as he was. He's fully human, fully God. And Jesus' family tree reveals to us that God's plan of salvation is one that is from all of us, or for all of us. Saints and sinners alike. Men and women alike. You know, that in itself, for some of the Jewish people was kind of a stunner. Do you know among some of the sanctimonious Pharisees, they had morning prayers. Now, I don't think they all prayed this prayer. But some of these pious men would stand in their prayers. They would say, I thank you, Lord, this day that you have not created me a dog, a Gentile, or a woman. So, Jesus' family tree incorporates all 
of these. There is hope for all of us. The first meaning of this Christmas story is that in Jesus' family tree, that there are seeds embedded there that give us insight into where Jesus came from and who his message was for. I'm going to change the word up here. I had promise fulfilled, and as I was going, I had already sent these uh, PowerPoints to AJ, and this morning I thought, you know, um, this should be prophecy fulfilled, not promise fulfilled. Hundreds of prophecies that come from the Old Testament pertaining to the coming of Messiah. And here's one of them. But you, Bethlehem, out of you will come one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from ancient times. Let's focus on this prophecy concerning Bethlehem. Prophecy is one of those gifts of God where God tips his hand on what's coming next through the prophets. Scripture tells us that God always speaks through the prophets first of what's coming. But let's focus on Bethlehem. Why is Bethlehem so important here? Well, one thing is that it is the very name Bethlehem. In Hebrew, Bethlehem. Beth is the Hebrew word for house. And Lehem is the Hebrew word for bread. It's the house of bread. Isn't it fitting that God would ordain that his son who calls himself the bread of life, would be born in the house of bread. But Bethlehem also was said to be the birthplace of King David and the home of King David. And the prophecy of the coming Messiah is that he would be a descendant of David himself. You know, we could have even included David... I really like King David. I mean, he's a real hero. But I'm telling you, this guy had a dark side to him. But he had a heart after God's God's own heart. And all of that was set aside. The imperfections, the family problems, the moral failures in his life. But he loved the word of God and as the deer pants for the water, says David, so my heart longs after thee. So there is a way past Pilgrim's dilemma as he waits for God's answer. Wait, wait, there may be a way. And that brings us to the nativity itself. It's all about God. Now this is something that's part of the dark side of our human nature. And I'm no different than anybody else on this. When I do something that is good or sacrificial, I sure hope God is watching. Because I want him to look down and say, you know, that Stan Stewart, he's not really a bad guy. But 
there are times when there are things I think or do that I sure hope God's not watching. Because as a perfect God, He cannot at just face value accept and welcome any of us into eternity with Him, the perfect God, because it wouldn't be perfect anymore if we in our sinful nature are there. And so God's answer was, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. You know, I understand some of the excess Mariology of the Catholic faith. But I'm telling you that for some of us as Protestants, we've kind of shortchanged Mary. She certainly is of equal standing to any of the apostles or disciples. This was the woman that was chosen by God to be the mother of God incarnate. Now what I want you to notice about this is God did not take a woman that was saved out of sin in her life. But he chose a woman that was saved from sin in her life. I I think I might have mentioned this once or twice before. When I read through the Beatitudes, and Jesus says in that Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I've never read a commentator or a theologian that has said this. This is just one of uh, my Stan Stewart interpretations of a verse. I just wonder if in Jesus' mind he wasn't thinking of his mother Mary, pure in heart, and she saw the face of God incarnate. She gave birth to him. Here's what I want you to understand. God honors the sincere piety, purity, holiness, I'm not talking about a Pharisee brand of that. But the rightness in our life. And God rewards that. And the same can be said of Joseph. Scripture says he was an honorable man. And God chose a young couple. I know that there's some that say that Joseph must have been much older. There's nothing hinted at that in Scripture. We don't know. But God chose a godly couple to be the vessel through which the gift of his son. And now we're coming closer to the wait a minute that God said to Pilgrim that we started with. But why the virgin birth? Why the nativity? You see, we cannot have, there's no way we can qualify to earn our own standing before God. We're conceived in sin. And before we're old enough to know we're sinning, we already are. St. Augustine, in the Confessions of Augustine, talks about fallen human nature. And he says, that cute little baby, I think he's being kind of harsh here, that cute little baby 
that is crying for his mother's milk. That's just the cry of infant selfishness, saying, give me, give me. Well, I think he's going a little too far there. But there is that nature. We are already complicit in sin before we're old enough to know what it is. And so salvation has to come from God himself. Why the God-man? Because, and this comes from St. Anselm, the great um, Archbishop of Canterbury in the 12th century, the 1100s. He had a legal mind, and he thought of it this way. He was a lawyer by training. And he said, in order for there to be payment for our sins and shortcomings, we have to die for our own sins. You can't just go sacrifice a sheep and have them pay for your sins. In a standby way, uh, way before the cross, yes, sacrifices were required until the ultimate sacrifice could come. And so it has to be a person that pays the price for their own sin. But even if you could find a person who was perfect, which is almost an uh, oxymoron in and of itself, if you found somebody to die for your sins, that would atone for one person's sin. But we've got billions of people on the planet right now So it can't be one person paying for another person's sin. Who is great enough to be the sin bearer for the entire planet Earth? God. He's infinite in every way. And if God himself lays down his life as a human, there can be the atonement for the sins of the entire world. And so there in that manger lay God incarnate, 100% God, and at one and the same time, one. 100% man. It's the God-man that can pay the price for his own standard of truth and justice and righteousness. And so there in the manger lay God's one possible solution for how he without compromising his own perfection, nature, or character, can atone for the sins of a broken and fallen human race. And that's the miracle, or part of the miracle, of the nativity. Small beginning. In fact, um, next Sunday, the message is going to be the week of joy, but the message is going to be titled, Such a small king. Because God does not make his entry into our world or our life 
in the way that the king of England does or any other king. And yet he has a kingdom that outlives them all. So it's all about God. God is the essence and the substance of our salvation. And as we look to him in faith, we vicariously can partake in the righteousness and perfection of God as we are working on accomplishing that in the flesh in our lives. Do I need to find vicarious for anybody here? You all know what I'm... Let me just put it this way. When I was um, a young father, I had a son. He was a great athlete. I grew up in the Philippines, a missionary's kid. And man, could I play basketball. But when we came to the States, baseball was what they played in the, in the, uh, in the summer. And boy, I had a hard time getting, learning how to hit that ball when they're throwing at you as fast as you can. I got better at it, but I, I was never as good at baseball as I was at basketball. I had a son, and he showed some promise in baseball. And so I was his baseball coach all the way through Pee Wee League, and I was an assistant coach in, uh, for his first year in high school, and he was a great pitcher, and I, I, I learned something. I just enjoyed my son, Rob, coaching him play baseball because I could somehow vicariously get fulfillment in what I couldn't experience as a baseball player as a kid, but through my son. And through that way, we can partake of the righteousness of God. Let's keep moving. God is for us. You know, I I think on some level, we all are afraid that God is mad at us in some way. Think of all of the human sacrifice and all of the things that has happened from antiquity uh, through the um, Maya culture. I've been to Chichen Itza and seen where they offered human sacrifices and ripped the beating heart out of a young man and held it up as a sacrifice to the gods. But scripture's not that way. God is for us. And here's the scripture for that. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, that the world through him might be saved. Here is an announcement for any who have not heard it so far. God did not create you to damn you. God created us as God's good creation. To spend eternity with Him and to join friendship with God in this life and in the life to come. But He had to find a way that He could overcome the fatal flaw that we have within ourselves. And just know this for every beating heart. God has a plan and a purpose and a blessing and good things for you in your life. God is for us, but God is also with us. 
This is the last half of Matthew 123 that I read just a moment ago. And they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's not God ahead of us. It's not God behind us. It's not God alongside us. He may be all of those things, but more than that, he is with us. The Apostle Paul says in Acts 17.28, For in him we live and move and have our very being. That Spirit of God inhabits the human heart. It inhabits creation. Creation isn't God. We're not pantheists. But it requires the touch of God's Spirit and the presence of God's Spirit, the spark of God's Spirit within us to give us life and love and hope and purpose. So God is with us, Emmanuel. One of Satan's favorite tricks is try to convince you that God isn't with you right now because of what you've done or what you think or past failures or whatever it may be. But he's with you. And just understand that because God became enfleshed in Christ and entered our world. He is within every human heart and it is in a way that leads to salvation if you will simply respond in faith. Ordinary people and an extraordinary God. Almost finished. Hang with me. And there were shepherds living out in the fields. Well, you've heard it said many times. Uh, Then or now, nobody has aspirations for their son to grow up and be a shepherd. There certainly is a more noble calling than that. This is a, but who did the angels announce the birth of Christ to? Shepherds. Somebody said one time, God must really love ordinary people because he sure made a lot of them. And that's true. And you know, I've had an emotional moment this weekend. I've brought a granddaughter of mine to church with me a couple of times. Some of you might have met Grace. She's been here. And God is doing some extraordinary things in Grace's life. Just to cut to the chase, I have five kids. They're all doing very well now. But I hope I'm not the only one here, but I had a couple of kids that had their wild years. They weren't as godly as I wish they were. And one of them is Grace's father. Paul, he was here. I wouldn't say this if Paul was here. So don't, if he comes to church one of these times, don't, don't say, so you're the one. You know, but um, Paul married the wrong woman. And anyway, she ended up in prison. She's uh, a drug addict. And the courts took her daughter away from her because she had taken him away from Paul when she left Paul. And Paul had lost track of her for two years. Long to just cut to the chase, miraculously, an answer to prayer. And I could give you all the details, but I won't. 
through a phone call from Child Protective Services. Grace was given back to her father. In the meantime, Paul has grown up to be a wonderful young man and uh, father and just in wonderful ways. Here's the thing. Grace was so damaged from the influence of her mother and I had dinner with her father uh, last night and, and he would be nodding his head, yes, that Grace is in a much better place than she was when she was with his daughter. He's had to cut off all contact with her. She didn't go to school for two and a half years. She lived in pay-by-the-week motels. Her mother gave her gummy bear marijuana in order to calm her down. Sometimes when she was in a uh, pay-by-the-week motel, she would get hungry and she would go knock on the door of someone next to her and ask if there was any food that she could have. The story could go on and on. And it's going to be a long road back for Grace. A broken life. Very ordinary person. If anything, a disadvantaged person. But watching her now for just over a year, being back home, the smile on her face, and we went to a play. That's the reason her other grandfather came up from Phoenix there. And she had to try out for a part in this play. When she first started going back to school, her grades were bad. She was way behind. She told me just the other day, Grandpa, I got all A's and B's now. She said, I got one C, but I'm working on that one too. Okay. And she was chosen for a part in the school play. Not a big part, but a part in it. And so Cherie and I went on Thursday night, and boy, we were so proud of her. She had one little singing part in it. She just nailed that puppy. I mean, right on. And what I'm trying to say is this broken life that was destined for some hard times, is on the right track now. She told Cherie the other day, because we paid for her to go to a youth convention. This has been about a month ago. And she had a great time there. And she told Cherie, she said, you know, this is where Grandpa's going to get choked up. I felt God. You know? We have an extraordinary God that takes the broken pieces, the bad attitudes, the failures in our life, and he makes something extraordinary out of it. Now the other thing, these shepherds, I'm telling you, their careers were different. After the angels came to them, they were proud shepherds now. Because God had come to them the least of them. Last point. At just the right time. Paul says it this way in Galatians 4.4. 4, but when the time, when the set time had fully come, God sent forth his son. The entire human history of planet earth is but a blink in the eye of God. It seems like a long time to us. But the stage had to be set for the coming of Messiah. Alexander the Great wasn't a particularly godly man. But he's the one who introduced some of the great thinkers into the world. The, pro uh, the um, prophets, the uh, philosophers, 
Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. He settled all as far as east as India. Wherever he went as a pagan ruler, he was trying to plant Greek culture and language. The Greek language became the international language of exchange by the time of the New Testament. After Alexander was gone, the Romans came and they turned the Mediterranean Sea and the surrounding coastlands into a Roman lake. They opened seaports. They established roadways that just networked the entirety of the Western world at that time. The time was set, and God sent forth His Son. All of these things had been playing into God's master plan. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. There was lots more that still had to happen. It wasn't until 1,400 years later that the printing press was invented. It wasn't until the, late, was it the early 19th century that the radio and then the television was invented. And it's just been in the last, what, 30, 40 years that computers... I mean, there's lots of great things that are still happening. But in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. Now, I just want to leave you with this thought. There's nothing that is happening in your life that God hasn't planned and set the stage for. You haven't missed the boat. And even if you have... God is marvelous at drawing and making beauty out of the ashes. There. So in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. So I just want to leave you with this thought. Is there a season's meaning that God's wanting to birth? in your life today. I I presume that all of us that are here are Christians. I I don't know that for sure. But even as Christians, sometimes we kind of wander off the pathway. God can take that and use that and turn it into something wonderful and beautiful in your life. I'd like us to stand together. And in a moment, um, we're going to sing one last song. Come, O Come, Emmanuel. A.J. had picked that one out before I got here, and I thought, that's a good one to close with today. And I want us to just think about God coming into our world and our life, the ordinary things that he needs to do something extraordinary with. The way that we are linked with the past of where God has brought us. You might be at a fullness of time moment. And as we sing this song, you can multitask. I just want you to be turning the scan on in your mind and in your heart with what season's meaning God might want to bring to birth in your life today.